Good afternoon, everyone. If you could please take your seats, uh, we're going to start in a moment. Thank you very much for being here this afternoon. Um, for those of you who've just joined us, my name is Karen Greenberg, and I've been organizing this year's 1 to 54 Forum. It's a, my pleasure to have Ashraf Jamal and Shiraz Baju here with us today. We've been speaking in the previous uh, session about CCA Lagos in particular, and the idea of how you build knowledge and maintain archives um, locally, very much within the Nigerian context. And I now want to take a, a bit of a step um, further out and look at something more uh, global. Because BC, although she was rooted in Nigeria and was very committed to being present there and making a difference on the continent, she was very much somebody who traversed the entire world and brought her knowledge and expertise to bear um, on on us all in many different parts of the world. So I think it's important that we, we, we are embedded in a local context, but we're always looking uh, beyond the immediate, as she did so very well. And so this session, uh, this conversation between Ashraf and, and Shiraz is really to, to think about a subject that has been relatively neglected within African art history and the discourse more generally. And that's the continent's position within the Indian Ocean. Um, so we've talked a lot, of course, of you know, the last decade and more about how Africa relates to Europe through the colonial kind of heritages and, and of course, to, to the US through slavery. Um, BC was very involved in research in Brazil and the connection between Nigeria and Brazil. And those linkages uh, that we have around the world, I think, are really important to trace and, um, and reflect upon. And so that's, that's what our two speakers are going to be doing today with respect to uh, Africa in its place within the Indian Ocean. So I'd like to introduce Ashraf Shamal, who's a cultural analyst, author, editor, and associate in the Visual Identities and Design Research Center at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. He is the co-author of Art in South Africa, The Future Present, and the co-editor of Indian Ocean Studies, Social, Cultural, and Political Perspectives, in addition to being the author of Predicaments of Culture in South Africa and in the World, Essays on Contemporary Art. So thank you very much for coming from South Africa to be with us today. And um, our other speaker is Shiraz Baju, whose work you may well have seen upstairs at the fair at Ed Cross. If you haven't already, please do go and have a look. Uh, he is a Mauritian artist based between London and Mauritius. His practice explores the social, political, and historical conditions integral to Mauritian cultural identity and the wider Indian Ocean region. He often uses photographs and artifacts from public and personal archives, a topic that we've been dedicating a lot of today to. And his work culminates in a multidisciplinary practice of video, painting, photography, and sculpture. His practice considers the formation of collective identity and nationhood through the entangled legacies of European colonialism and their relationships to slavery and indentured labor. So thank you very much for being here. And uh, over to you. Uh, <coughs> are we mic'd up? Yes. yes. Great. Firstly, um, <coughs> good late afternoon, good evening um, to you, to yes. friends. Um, Shiraz and I have constructed a schema. I'm going to speak for 15, five minutes, which is basically just to give you a sense of historical and cultural and political context around the idea of the Indian Ocean in, in the broadest sense. And then after that, we will try and find a way to filter that into our interpersonal exchange and draw out how it is one particular artist is able to tap into that world and make it work for us. Is that an all right schema for you as an initial kickoff? Okay. Um, the, um, the first thought that, that came to mind was actually <laughs> um, the idea, the Arabic word for travel is a, a slight variation of the Arabic word for writing. So um, in the word for travel is safar, and the word for writing is sifar. And the interesting interlinkage between this mobility and narration is an important idea because one narrates oneself into being, and that being is created in movement. The thing we forget is that mobility defines us far more than sedentary cultures. We are inherently nomadic. We are inherently migratory. And yet, curiously, we try and construct these citadels 
these cordon sanitaires, these frameworks to define ourselves, which are fixed and solid. But these, while pragmatic, are fundamentally delusory. And as you can gather in current global politics, can also be dangerously demented because it results in notions like protectionism, isolationism, tribalism, nativism. It constructs the idea of an essence of being and therefore in many, many ways diminishes what we really are. Um, for example, Shiraz is originally, that we, when we say originally, it's always a problem. You've got to think in the Derridian sense of originally. You've got to take the word origin and then put an X over it because nobody really knows where anybody comes from or whether where we come from is truly of great relevance to understanding who we are as beings. So Shiraz, one could say, um, is from southern India, and one could say from my side that I'm from western India. Um, but to the extent to which we are Indians must be conceived under erasure because we're constructed by many, many continents there are many, many vectors and influences which shape who and what we are. And that applies to every single person in this room. So travel then and mobility as the means to understand how to narrate oneself into being. And in the eighth century, Al-Imam Al-Shafi, um, who is a Sunni Muslim scholar, had this wonderful thing to say. He said, travel, set out and head for pastures new. Life tastes the richer when you've road-worn feet. No water that stagnates is fit to drink, for only that which flows is truly sweet. So this idea of mobility is also an idea which is oceanic. But the oceanic is not only a literal ocean. The oceanic is a state of mind. So for example, the caravan Sarai. Imagine caravans moving across a desert. And in an optical illusion, it feels as though it's moving across water. And if anybody's read The English Patient, you'll have a, the, <laughs> so a recognition over there. You'll have a strong sense what was once desert was once ocean. So if what, was once, what is desert was once ocean, at what point can one therefore say this is land and that is sea? A dear friend of mine told me something as we were overlooking the Thames yesterday, a word I've never heard before, which I find absolutely exquisite, a mudlarker. And I thought, wow, what an interesting preoccupation. You go there to the shores of the Thames, you know, as the water level sinks, and then you discover all these great wonders which are ancient. Now, the thing about this is that this is where we actually live. We're all actually all mudlarkers because we live between land and sea because we're inherently migratory. So in actual fact, even if you're a landlubber living in the deepest heart of the UK, you only got there by virtue of movement and movement across water. So that point where we actually live is the littoral point between land and sea. And that is the imaginative point I wanted to think of, why the littoral is far more interesting than the hinterland or the oceanic, because that's the point of maximum encounter, of maximum engagement, of maximum self-realization and transformation. Now, Michael Pearson, a wonderful maritime historian from New Zealand, has a beautiful essay you can access online on mudlarkers, on the littoral. He says, because we are inherently amphibian as beings. So therefore, if we're inherently amphibian, we're always treading water. In the rich complexity of that idea, we're always caught in some state of unsettlement in the moment of self-knowledge. And that is a very generative place to occupy. So the thing is, in terms of the culture of the Indian Ocean, this is interesting, is that um, a formulation which has stuck with me for the last 12 years is the notion that the Indian Ocean is the cradle of globalization. So if you think about the 1500s as the defining point, um, and actually um, Adam Smith makes this claim very strongly, and no matter how disputable the claim is, it explains history as we know it. Adam Smith basically argues that it's in the 1500s that with the discovery of America and the rounding of the Cape that we ha arrived at the most important historical moment in history. But now you know that history is optical. It's perspectival. It's who's telling the history from which vantage point. Obviously, from a Western vantage point, and primarily a European vantage point, it makes sense because that's the point at which Europe is able, the European um, seafarers are able to access South America and therefore to access silver. Without silver, 
Europe had absolutely nothing to exchange with the East because the East wanted absolutely nothing from Europe. Europe would technically have stayed in the Dark Ages if it wasn't for the discovery of silver. More importantly, if it wasn't for the rounding of the Cape because, of course, <coughs> the Muslims contained the Silk Road and the Suez Canal. So basically, the ancient trade routes across the, the Silk Route, Silk Trade routes, for example, those were at some point shut off because of, of political sort of conflicts. So there had to be another way for Europe to arrive at the Indian Ocean. And that was the extremely treacherous point, which arrives um, at where I was born, Cape Town, which is called um, <laughs> Cape, uh, the Cape of Good Hope. But you know, the original name is Cabo Tormentoso, the Cape of Storms, because it is not a Cape of Good Hope. It's a cape that is dark and brutal and harsh, you know, where people could not actually begin to imagine constructing a civilization. It was used as a, as a madhouse, as a, as a watering hole, as a, you know, as a way station. Nobody conceived. But this is the point. You can't conceive in advance where you will inhabit. You will only find that in the instinct of movement and the accidents that produce the spaces. Now, in terms of where Shiraz and I are in our world, where are we? We are global citizens. Yeah. We are caught um, in spaces where we're always between spaces. And the thing that Shiraz told me yesterday, which was very interesting, he was talking about how, and this is typical, how people love to fetishize about their origins. I am from here. I would say, I am Gujarat. Well, that's only a minor dimension of who I am. But my father would say, but we are Gujarat, you know, because that becomes the insistent matrix that we hold on to because we desperately want to believe in an origin. But my argument is, it is dull and futile to construct these illusions. What we need to do, especially at this critical moment, and this is the important thing, which wonderful Swiss thinker Andre Gunder Frank makes this point, which I think will lead us into where we are right now. Um, he says, and he's right, he passed away a few years ago, but this is a stunning book. The book is called Reorient Global Economy in the Asian Age. Now, of course, we know which age we're in. We are very much in the encroaching Asian age. The idea of a, a Eurocentric concept is becoming increasingly null and void. As for North America, it's becoming increasingly absurd. But we're not going to go there in terms of any real viability, in terms of a global human transformation. What we need, rather, is what Andre Gunder Frank says, I do believe that we are in a dire need, this is the crucial, crucial phrase, in a dire need for an alternative perspective of the world an alternative perspective of the world for the new world disorder in the making. So this is where we actually are. We need an alternative perspective. This is something I'd like to share with us once I've um, conversed with Shiraz, because this is the critical thing. What is this alternative perspective we desperately need for the new world disorder in the making? So therefore, we are not in any space of stasis. We're in a space of radical unrest and transformation, radical doubt and anxiety about how to position ourselves. So who are we, what are we, and how does the Indian Ocean occupy a critical space? And I believe, William will try and argue and proves, it occupies a vital space in the redefinition, not only of who we are as individuals, but in the redefinition in terms of what Paul Gilroy wonderfully called a planetary humanism which is where we need to truly move. So Shiraz, um, in terms of these thoughts, we should try to toss out into the world. I mean, how do they work for you in terms of the way you work and make art, and importantly, also how you live as an individual? I mean, I think it was interesting <clears throat> when we spoke before about how, um, you know, I'm based on two islands, you know, mm -hmm. based between Mauritius and based on, on, the, on this mm -hmm. island here, but also in the dynamic in the way that also London, in a sense, is an island on this island <laughs> as well. Um, certainly, crossovers, points of meeting have always been very central to where I've been. I've always somehow lived by the sea, interestingly. And <clears throat> interestingly, it's also, as much as they are places of conversion, they're also places where people are continuously leaving, mm. which is something that folks always tell me about Mauritius. Madagascar, it's always a sense 
that as much as people are coming and this is a great place of crossover, it's also a place where people are also continuously exiting, which I think also leaves an interesting psychological space of where we inhabit as a part of that. But certainly in terms of my own work and research, the Indian Ocean has been and is very much the universe of which I imagine and see from my childhood. And the colors, the sea, as we spoke before as well, coastlines, these are very much part of the narratives of how and where we come together. And not just in the commerce, because often we speak of these spaces in terms of trade, in terms of <clears throat> what has fueled empire and ambition and power, but actually it is also just as much about culture, writing, religious identity. These are the complexities actually that need to be raised into the fore, need to be brought into the focus, because it's this kind of language that we can understand ourselves. And we can understand ourselves perhaps in a way that has not been imported from an outside voice. And that is one of the major important things I feel that this region and the discourse around the Indian Ocean has to, has to give, you know, because I think for a very long time we have also been to a certain degree dominated by a transatlantic discourse, which whilst incredibly important, has limited our perspective into how we are actually really interconnected, into where perhaps some of these aspirations, both European, Asian and African, have originated from. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, in terms of where are you going, the first thing about the fact we're always leaving. Remember the premise I said, we're in, we like to pretend we exist in situ, but we're always, we're always fudging our bets. We're always moving between places. You know the line from T.S. Eliot, in the room the woman come and go, talking about Michelangelo, well just magnify that by a billion, and then you get the entire human world moving through a hotel lobby because that's actually what we're doing all the time. We're perpetually in transit. And there's a fantastic um, excerpt from um, um, a, a story by Amitav Ghosh, um, The Imam and the Ocean. Now, it actually comes from a man I absolutely adore. He's an American ethnographer called James Clifford. And in his book, Roots, he opens up with this quotation. And the quotation is amazing to what Shiraz was saying about always leaving, always moving. When I first came to that quiet corner of the Nile Delta, I had expected to find on that most ancient and most settled of soils a settled and restful people. I couldn't have been more wrong. The men of the village had all the busy restlessness of airline passengers in a transit lounge. Many of them had worked and traveled in the sheikdoms of the Persian Gulf. Others had been in Libya and Jordan and Syria. Some had been to the Yemen as soldiers, others to Saudi Arabia as pilgrims. A few had visited Europe. Some of them had passports so thick they opened like ink-blackened concertinas. This is in a village. Okay. So our presumptions about what defines a village and what defines a highly dense urban space have been completely trounced here. Now, this notion of mobility is built into whom and what we are. It defines our aspirational conditions, our yearnings, but also our struggles and also our pain and also our suffering. So when you, for example, referring obviously to Paul Gilroy's major work, The Black Atlantic, but more deeply to this idea of, of how that ocean and its, and its littoral, its coastlines, North and South America, all across the, the uh, West African coastline, how these have been massively shaped by a very, 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 very brutal history. So it's not, I'm not trying to romanticize movement here. I'm saying it's inescapable as a part of whom we are, but it also sometimes has very brutal ruptures and breaks, which is precisely why um, the Atlantic Ocean is such a major import, because it's the one that basically abuts the Americas, Africa, and Europe. And I must confess, having been born in, in Cape Town, I have that same uh, prioritization of the Atlantic Ocean as defining whom I am. Basically, I conceived of my life, there I was in my little sort of outpost, in my very, very liberal, quiet outpost in Cape Town. And then I sort of hopped, skipped and jumped across sub-Saharan Africa, paid a nod to West Africa because of the history of slavery, and then swiftly sort of zoomed into Europe and then way into North America. That was my headspace for the bulk of my life until I was stuck in, on the equator 
in Kuala Lumpur and looked at the global map and felt completely disoriented and realized, hold it, I mean, how do we construct our geographies and who invented that geography which we then align and define ourselves through? Because suddenly I realized, hold it a second now, I mean, what me defined myself through that trajectory along the Atlantic, but what about the other one? We can all do that to our lives, and it'll be amazing once you do that, how you shape things completely. So this is the thing that was very intriguing about what you were saying about leaving and about also about the fact that we are caught in different trajectories constantly. And the other thing that I found very intriguing was this, why the Indian Ocean universe was so important to you. It's not because it's a romantic idea. I mean, yes, in the seventh century, this is, think about the 1500s is the point at which the West occupy, begins to start occupying that territory. But from the seventh century, when they actually managed to figure out the movement of the monsoon, prior to that, all the travels were happening across a land, across the Silk Road, for example. But in the seventh century, suddenly, bingo, everything explodes. Then what do we have? The Arab world moves into the East African world, Southeast Asia, the Indian subcontinent, and the Chinese world. But the one thing, and poor Africans, poor us, you know, and damn it, it takes an Indian to really screw our lives over. You know what he says? This is K.N. Chowdhury. K.N. Chowdhury marginalizes Africa in his conceptualization of the Indian Ocean. This is what the bastard says. He says, in, in, in Chowdhury's scheme of the Indian Ocean blends imperceptibly into Asia, comprising four distinct but comparable civilizations. Islamic, Sanskritic Indian, Chinese, and Southeast Asian. But this is what he says about Africa. The exclusion of East Africa from our civilizational identities needs a special word of explanation. In spite of its close connection with the Islamic world, the indigenous African communities appear to have been structured by a historical logic separate and independent from the rest of the Indian Ocean. So that denigration, that underdevelopment of the African continent is not something that we can just blame Europe for. Here we have an Indian scholar who has the audacity to make the same error. Okay. So what we need to realize how deeply entrenched these presumptions, these prejudices are, and what I think we should be doing in rethinking the concept or trope of the Indian Ocean is how that ocean, is one amongst others. For example, Africa is constantly see, conceived as a landmass. People forget about the Mediterranean. They forget about the Atlantic. They forget about the Indian Oceans. What constitutes a landmass? People come from every direction. The moment you can see the things in such a hard and fast way, and that's why, for example, you have an essentializing of black Africa, which is a very, very dodgy notion. Because, of course, Africa is massively complex, not simply because of all the peoples that come from elsewhere along the coast, but because of the Maghreb, and because of the major pushes from other parts of the world, the, the churning and changing of places. The same thing with Europe. Europe is not what it tries to imagine itself to be. It's a deeply migratory concept. And the more we actually hold fast those notions, the more we will have a healthy idea of whom we are, what we do, and how we interact. What you were saying as well, we fetishize trade at the expense of culture, writing, religious identities. And more and more, what's happening in terms of reconceiving whom we are, we are holding fast to the very things which we have thought of as secondary. Look at how, for example, the art world has exploded upon the universe right now. It's become the defining sort of way of understanding whom and what we are. Now, Sujata Bos makes the argument you're making here as well. He says the following. He says, um, the ancient, if not eternal, quality of the Indian Ocean has appealed not just to historians, but to poets and philosophers as well. The key thing here is that um, we need to understand the importance of creativity, how we imagine ourselves, how we dream ourselves, how we write and how we paint and how we film our stories to be able to do that. And this is what you are doing in terms of creating your poetics of an ocean. It's not a poetics of some isolated body of water. <clears throat> no. It's a poetics that has a massive impact on a global imagination. Is that absolutely. correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it is very much poetics that drives us. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, I've been losing my voice. <laughs> Sweet. Um, 
absolutely. Poetics is a, is a huge, important, incredibly important tool, I think, that we use in order to cut through what is often an overwhelming or difficult to perhaps at times come understand the multiple layers of which um, just migrations and movements have taken place, but also movements that have taken place internally as well. I mean, for example, we often think about that actually oceanic movement in the Indian Ocean is only something that ever really took place once European arrivals started to really be, uh, be present. But as an example, an interesting fact that I always found in, in, the, in the body of research I did in Madagascar was how um, tribal groups, how, how, how folks would get together in canoes of up to 60 men. And they would get together into formations of 500 canoes. 25,000 people would, would, would congregate as a canoe-going oceanic army. And they would go and head off cut off as far north as India on trade trips. Um, and it wasn't just, obviously, commerce that was taking place there. There were movements of people and of ideas and of the arts themselves and writing, which was so incredibly precious. Um, so, you know, we start to understand that actually these are not places that were untouched or that were isolated until until as we talk about this spark of globalization begins, but actually that it was a mercantile world and that was actually very deeply interconnected long before, well not even long before European presence because actually European presence goes back even earlier than that, just not in a, perhaps in an imperial or in an East India company sense. Um, so we have to start to understand how complex the, the influences start to move. And this is a region that encompasses not just Africa, but India, the China, and it goes all the way round to Australia and back round. So actually, when we speak about this region, it's not just a region, it's actually, you know, half of the world in a, of a sense, you know, and certainly half of what influences us and into the 20th century and how we have defined ourselves. The influences of that have come through. And in some ways, you see it more than ever through the food, mm. uh, which I know sometimes <laughs> is such an easy way for us to describe it. Yeah. But the food really does rep represent that. Um, when I was in Sharjah recently, it was interesting to see the sense of ownership of that space, of the, of the Indian Ocean region, from even that perspective. You know, from a Middle Eastern perspective, we don't often again think, you know, that, you know, we think of that as a desert region. What is its connection to the ocean? But actually, the ocean, it is actually, it was, it was, it was, it had perhaps a major dominance, really, mm. of, of, um, of, of, the, of the whole East African region and, and down to the southern Indian Ocean for a very long time. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's the other thing. It's this idea of ownership and influence. We think about when we think of European influence and what feeds into European culture and identity here, we claim a lot more than just what is the landmass of this region. So why is it that then in an African sense that we do not perhaps also understand that the region of influence and what can be brought in, what is part of your world, <clears throat> why it does not stretch around, why it does not claim all of that, you know? Because it does, because the reality is, is that it does. But when sometimes I speak to, to, to friends on the west coast of the continent, they feel a disconnection to understand, well, how and where do you sit within our, within our psyche of, 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 of our African world? And it's like, well, actually, well, the union is a very simple way of talking about that. Mm -hmm. You know, we are part of the union. But actually, in reality, it's the, the, the sphere of influence and what has come into your cultural mind has actually expense far more than perhaps we give credit to, mm. if that makes sense. If I understand it correctly as well, when you talk about regionalism, what you're also more importantly talking about is interregionalism. Mm. And that's a very important, especially, in, you know, <coughs> the, the concept of nationhood is an 18th century confection um, in terms of the idea of how one establishes one's sense of citizenship or one's allegiances. Um, but interregionalism, is a far richer and more mobile concept of how we interconnect. And I think this is what you're trying to do. So for example, when he brought, and I'm glad he brought in Australasia, people tend to forget about that. Well, including the Australians who denied so massively the association with the East that they still held onto this idea of Europe being the defining coder for whom they were. 
But of course, that's dramatically changed. And of course, we're now living, you know, one, the proximity relationship to Southeast Asia, for example, and the financial trade links to China, et cetera, are more and more becoming more and more the defining categories that shape and inform who we are. So these identities and these alliances keep shifting. And what's happening right now in this new disorder, new world disorder in the making, it's the shifting in alliances that we need to actually focus on and understand how these new productive alliances can create new identities, new allegiances, new concepts of who and what we are and what can, we can become. So you, know, you brought the notion of food, and of course the whole idea of fusion food summarizes that idea, not just the, the interconnectedness of, of foods, but more importantly, the hybridity. Because this is the key thing, is we still hold on to essences, and that is the major toxic sort of fallout of a dangerously absolutist concept of being, which we need to also route out if we are going to truly live productively in the 21st century, which are major questions we're all asking ourselves right now as we're being sort of hamstrung, hampered, and basically hobbled and hocked by pompous, blonde men. But we won't go there. Because um, the key thing is this, it's the diasporic um, notion that is crucial for us to actually hold on to. The diaspora is the critical idea of how to actually create the healthiest set of coordinates for the healthiest life. And I think the water, which is so central to your work, it becomes that, 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 that um, metaphor, um, not for romance, but for an actual flux that actually defines who and what we are. But we are treading water constantly, and we need to find a way to find a language to embrace that, that world in which we live. And that's what I think you're also trying to hold on to. Mercantilism, as you said, is the general traditional way um, for economic historians like um, Adam Smith to, to shape and explain what becomes necessary. And the current trade wars are clearly indi indicate, indicators of that focus. But for us as artists, as cultural thinkers, as people who are interested in, 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 a, in a more phenomenological idea of how one exists, you know, um, these trade relations, while they are relevant, while they impact upon us, are not the only things that make up whom we are. And I suppose it gets us to the word poetics, you know, um, which becomes critical as a, or poesis, as a way to actually rethink and relink what we can be and what we are. We are not all ba dancing badly in Africa like Theresa May tried to do while she was trying hopelessly to strike trade links belatedly. Some of us are rather fluent in our ability to engage with different worlds and cultures. And I think we need to be able to have that level of dexterity, flexibility, and grace, and humanity, and compassion in the way we understand. Any major rethinking of the Earth will require that epistemic crux. Without it, you can't make the art that you make. You can't work as tenderly with histories. Because if you were just an ethnographer or an, a voyeur, you know, um, well, that would be interesting in terms of art, but it would not give it its real, real heft. The heft has got to do with the fact it's not making a statement and a claim on behalf of redeeming an ocean. It doesn't need our redemption. What is, we're asking for is for us as thinkers and artists and cultural practitioners to engage imaginatively, and not just with the Indian Ocean, but with the relationship between solidity and liquefaction. Bachelard has written brilliantly on mud, absolutely exquisitely. But we've got to deal with that notion. We are actually in a, in a, in a, in a state of liquefaction, always. And that's what makes us the most exciting kinds of creatures we can be. Not these stentorian, breast-thumping, you know, sort of provincial thinkers who are assuming dominance in the earth right now. They are playing with a, an imaginary idea of stolidity and solidness and substance, which does not exist. What we need are all those poetic visions. And as I was saying to Shiraz yesterday, those flows, you know, when they're contained by these bounded sort of bows of wood, you know, in the sense in which the fragile things we always try to do is try to frame the fluidity of life. But, you know, long before Plato, who created such havoc for millennia, we had the pre-Socratics. We had Heraclitus, who said you can't step into the same river twice, who understood the importance of flux as the core category for understanding what existence is. And if we don't understand that as individuals in our own philosophies, we can't change idiotic, simplistic governments 
we will clearly go in the other way. But we can't create a counterculture and a counter war in terms of how we imaginatively conceive of ourselves. Um, I'd like to go back to what you were talking about, essentialism, <clears throat> because in one way, the way that we construct ourselves and we construct these mythologies about who we are. And one of the reasons why I often go back to Mauritius as one of my research and reference points, because it's because it's island nations, island colonies, or ex-colonies, um, are really very loaded in being able to allow us to see that, the sedimented layers of that. In Mauritius, essentialism still very much prevails. People believe or they seek to find a power base outside of the island within which to raise their agency politically. And so that often means that Indians, or as they want to, or as folks want to describe themselves as Indians, often will connect themselves back to Hindu nationalism in mainland India. You will find that often today Muslims are being brought into more of, of an Arab, sometimes Wahhabist kind of thinking is it prevails. Um, and for and, and, for the, and for the whites, very much are still existing within a Francophonoid um, perspective. For the Creoles in Mauritius, which in reality we are all Creole, because what our ancestors were in the mid part of empire, they were intermarrying and they were getting together. Love. Love was the tool of survival. And the, the mosque, the temple, and the church were the few public places of which you were allowed to meet. Because often, and even after the abolition of slavery, you were not allowed to leave your estates under indenture. So, so you know, places of worship were the places where people were allowed to meet. And one of the interesting bits of research we were speaking about yesterday, Megan Vaughan, who's a very interesting academic, has written about this, that, that folks were intermarrying, they weren't changing religious belief, but they were changing religious identity. So people were converting from Hinduism to Islam or to Christianity or to, you know, to Catholicism. Um, and this creates fluidity that perhaps does not exist today because the idea of who you were and the, and the identity of which was constructed around you was very much at that point about survival. And love, as I said, is the tool of which I think, I believe, people used to survive a lot in that period, particularly when you consider the extreme violence and the extreme psychological pressures that would have been around you in your everyday existence. Um, and so today, essentialism, unfortunately, prevails, as it does in so many different places, in so many places where we have supposedly become the decolonial, decolonization, decolonial process, but actually we have entered into perhaps a counter position of where we're actually um, almost supporting the system that existed before. Um, and so, so, as I was saying, you know, lots of folks might identify with Hindu nationalism or they might identify with the Middle East as part of their power groups. But for the Creoles, that is not possible because their point of history ends with a moment of violence and the erasure of where you were really from, you know, in East Africa, as, and as with many of our ancestors from Madagascar, um, there are no direct um, routes of which to find out who you were or where you came from. And so that has led to a continuous economic and political subjugation. And so as an interesting example of what then that, the counter of that is, so for young Creole men or, or those who would perhaps be described as that because they look perhaps more black African, if I say it like that, um, as opposed to more like the way that I look, perhaps I look more Indian in that sense, those folks who are identified as being that have started to convert to Rastafarianism <laughs> because that is an international identity that gives them a power base. So we are still, we are still so much that needs to unpick, to be unpicked. And so in that sense, I see that what we do is about creating language with which we can start to construct ourselves again, but not construct ourselves to create another type of essentialism, but to actually, to allow ourselves to be free and fluid, as you described. I not going to come back to how you were saying about fluidity rather than these rigid systems and these rigid 
concepts and frameworks of ourselves because ultimately we know that these are still the hangovers of colonialism because that was what a racialized labor system was all about. It was about placing you into those positions. There is a book in Mauritius that was written by a Victorian um, um, uh, industrialist and he talks about the different in different industries that are capable, that are possible on the island, and he talks about what all the different racial groups are good for. Mm -hmm. And as we know, the Indians were often used for the administrative part and for other folks, for labor and etc. And it goes on like this. And these, you know, these big old almanacs of this stuff still exist around the place. Mm -hmm. You know, so to think that they, these things don't stay heavily within the psychology and in the political system that we have inherited from our former masters, as it were, you know, it is ridiculous to think that those legacies aren't continually happening. So, you know, so when we're asked why we need to make these definitions, why right now we'd call it an Indian Ocean region rather than actually the world, mm -hmm. you know, right. why we have to make these definitions perhaps right now is about maybe trying to create language that allows us to shift, but not necessarily that that language should always exist like this either. Because I think also at times, we can, things perhaps are tools of which we need to get to the next stage, mm. but they're not necessarily tools that should be continued. Mm. It's a slightly precarious walk mm. line that, that can be, that, that is taken with that as well, though, I think. In terms of the argument you're making about essentialism, the fact that it prevails, you're absolutely right, it prevails. It, um, it is there, it has a toxic ability to resurface and to bind us and to chain us and shackle us, but we need to think beyond it. And people like Edouard Glissant, for example, yes. who used realization <clears throat> as a very vital um, topos to create a new idea of, of whom and what we are. Homi Baba did that in this concept of hybridity. But in terms of you know, what you know, Shiraz is saying now, we're not just talking about the Indian Ocean, we're talking about the world. And here I was thinking about Ebed Said's idea of worldliness. You know, um, in his case, a secular humanism, which allows for a way of living in the world that is truly compassionate and connected in the broadest sense. <coughs> but that's only possible, as you said, if we create um, a much more transnational or interregional concept of our own selves, and that we create a, uh, the idea of identity as, as, as more like a, as an open palm rather than as a clenched fist. Um, that would create a healthier idea of whom and what we are. Um, but as you said, it is that toxicity and that rapacious capacity on the part of, its essential, of, of essentialism to maintain its grip upon us. And that's the philosophy, that's the mindset, that's the zeitgeist that explains the degree to which we remain in bondage and the degree to which we remain enslaved. And this is not, I'm not talking about black Africa here. I'm talking about the entire world, um, enslaved to absolutisms of all kind, which are proving increasingly more treacherous, increasingly more dangerous, and increasingly more virulent in their capacity to control and shape us. And we are reaching our close of this regard, and we're hoping that you'd find it interesting to speak and talk to Shiraz and myself on matters which may exercise your minds and hearts. <laughs> Thank you. My, my question is to you, Shiraz, because I've heard you talk very beautifully about your work before, and I just wanted you to, if you wouldn't mind, think with us a little bit about how these ideas and these broad conceptualizations of your position actually materialize in your practice? Um, you know, what does it mean? What does it amount to make art with all of that stuff in your head? Sure, I mean, for, for, I mean, for one, one aspect, I mean, one of the, my starting points is, is research into archives and looking a lot of uh, archive photographs and materials. And in one sense, that is about looking at what are the potential origins of some of the perceptions we have and often Oh, as of what we have about ourselves, about about the histories or the nationhoods of which we we, we inhabit, um, and I think and 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 part of that is also then looking at what are the gaps between 
um, those perceptions and what exists in the archive. I don't that necessarily purporting that what the archive shows is actually either necessarily an absolute truth <coughs> either. I don't, that's, I don't think that's something that exists either, but, but I take that position through that part of the research. I also talk to brilliant historians and academics like yourselves, um, and I also talk to local historians and amateur historians also. I love talking to amateur historians because although they're not always very accurate, they present a vernacular perspective and a vernacular position within communities. And so I also do a lot of research with communities and then speak and spend time with folks in order to find out what are the ways that we feel about some of these stories or some of these positions. And, um, and so that is, that, is, that is normally my starting point. So to start to gather that. So it is not just also my own personal perspectives on these things, it's about gathering. Um, but also then, I think most importantly, what, work, what, what, what moves through my work is emotional resonance. Because we can write about these things and we have brilliant people like yourself, Ashraf, who can talk about these things very eloquently. But for me, what, do we, what is my role as a visual artist? I, th I believe it's about creating an emotional connection for which we can start to feel our way through these complexities. Because certainly to understand them face, face value, I think is almost impossible. And also to, to understand what their importance might be, I think is, is difficult. And I think we've become desensitized to it as well. And we, especially now as, as we are living in an age of absolute information, we start to become desensitized. So I feel like my role is to draw out positions and sensitivities and delicacies within things that we can start to connect with and start to perhaps to have an understanding that goes beyond just the logical. Because I believe in a, you know, that one of the ways that we live as human <coughs> beings is partly instinctual. And as we were talking about, when I was looking at, you know, thinking about what is the psychological position, what was the reality of some of our ancestors to have been able to survive on the plantation? What was that? What is, what was that? What is that reality going to be like? What are the mechanisms of which we might use within which to survive? And so I think notions like love, like care, taking care of each other, these kinds of notions start to become really quite powerful and start to become very powerful tools of on which then, well, how do we start to reconstruct ourselves? And then when we go back then to theory, like, for example, some of the last writings by Fanon, he starts to talk about radical empathy. And as you were saying, he says, you know, if we start to, if, if, we, if we're going to author a new world outside of the colonial, then that has to be something that is stripped away from notions of nationhood, gender, and, and, and um, racial hierarchies. So therefore, what is that going to be? I mean, it starts to describe some kind of utopia. But then, is it so ridiculous that we should start to imagine what those utopias might be? Uh, and, you know, and that's, you know, those ideas of radical empathy start to come in. In terms of a very practical way, in terms of the actual art making, well, that's why I make so many different types of things, because I think different kinds of making allows us to have different degrees of proximity and sensitivity or delicacy with things. Um, and a lot of my work, for example, some of the photographic work, which is you know quite straight up photographic work, but it is also about the romanticism. It's about how the language of space has been used over time to push us towards certain types of ideals. And so in some of my work, I start to try to deconstruct us away from that. You know, so, you know and rather than, for example, the enduring image of the tropics. You know, what one of, what one, um, one of the strong notions that I always used to know about, what I always used to find really difficult to understand as a child, was how folks always used to, you know, this idea that if you were a slave from East Africa and you were brought to Mauritius, well, you know, you were kind of from a hot place to another hot place, you're kind of going to survive when you escape into the forest. The maroon is going to be okay, right? You don't need to be clothed. You're going to find fruits on the trees because somehow mangoes just grew everywhere in the world. They weren't just brought over in the last hundred years or whatever. You know, these ridiculous notions. Um, and actually, the reality is, is that, that these spaces were incredibly alien and they were terrifying, not just for the maroons, but also actually for the early European arrivals. And we know this because of the mass mismanagement of ecologies, right? <laughs> Which we know we inherit today. <clears throat> so I start to play around with the language, for example, of landscape. In terms of paintings, for example, the painting like this, it's also about the imaginary. 
what does water do for us? What does, for example, what does it do? I mean, for me, it was a cleanser. It is a dominating factor as a child in my mind. Um, and I would, I would be honest and say that in those days, I had a very much a very Western European understanding of it. And I used to, used to, as much as, as much as it, it, as much as it lured me, it also terrified me. I, you know, remoteness. But recently, I was working with some artists in Tasmania, not such a different island to to my own. And there, they are very much a seafaring nation, like like the Malagasy, like the Madagascan um, 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 canoe-going warriors that I described. And they always talk to me about how the ocean is our connector, not our divider. And I think that is actually a very fundamental way, different way of thinking to from the south to the north. I think there is a very different way of thinking in that sense. And that was really extraordinary to me because it was like, you're not going, you're just, you're, you're taking this highway that actually we are directly connected to. Um, and that's one of the other things we often also start to only we imagine ourselves through these colonial routes still, mm. through the trade routes, mm. the same trade routes where the telegraph lines were laid yeah. and that today the data lines are laid. I mean, these continue to be the same pathways. Um, and yet the reality is, is that actually lateral movements were taking place and not just during colonialism, but way before as well, all kinds of lateral movements were taking place between folks. Um, and I think, you know, and another artist that we work with, Brooke Andrew, was speaking about this yesterday. We were talking about the south-south of the global south um, conversation. So he, he, he reputes that. He thinks that's too old school. He says, actually, when we start, when we look at the star maps from Christmas Island, from the folks that were there before, there is no north and south. There is just, and we navigate ourselves within that space. So I think, you know, we have to start to rethink our, if we are to invent ourselves, if we are to invent language, and we are seeking to remove ourselves out of these systems of subjugation, then we have to really radically think about our understandings of, of, of how we even think of space and time around ourselves, right? <laughs> I thought that makes sense. <clears throat> yeah. Um, there aren't that many artists working in the way that you are. And I'm curious to know whose work you're looking at and what you're taking away from those different practices. I mean, well, I mean, for starters, this building is full of artists that influence me all the time. Um, there, I mean, I think right now we're living in an age of, of you know, some, I mean, if, if I can slightly step out of your question for a second, the Dakar um, Biennial in Senegal which, which I, I know many of us in this room were at um, previously, that, that is such a seminal moment every two years for so many artists because it brings this Afro world of artists and thinkers together. But it's not the Afro world of a racialized Afro world. It is an Afro world of, for example, you have Ibrahim Amedi over there, um, all the way to folks like me and artists all the way in between. There are influences and counter-influences that are taking place all the time right now. And it is super, super exciting. Um, and the conversation, what's so amazing is that, that we start on page 10 when we start the conversation. We don't introduce ourselves with, hey, I'm such and such, and this is what I do. We start off with, this is what we need to be doing right now. This is where we're going, who's on board, and everybody. And it continues <laughs> like this. Um, in terms of direct influences, I mean, in, in my early years, artists like Zarina Bimji, who unfortunately couldn't join us tonight, today, um, she's been an incredibly important artist, I think. You can probably see that in some of my film work. Um, there's been um, a huge amount of influence. There, when I first saw her film, Out of Blue, um, I just thought, wow, I, I, I never thought it would be possible to create a, a film work that it was just purely poetics, purely taking you through space and time and allowing that to infiltrate you. So, you know, influences like artists like Zineb Zadira, I think she has been hugely important to all of us. Um, and then, you know, right now, artists like Zanelli, you know, you know, incredible voices right now that, that are around us. So, so the influences are continuous. 
are continuous. I'm not going to say anymore because actually all of my contemporaries right now are very big influences. I see some of their faces. If I start saying one, I won't be able to, and I'd miss anybody out. But based on, but I, I feel like we are in an environment, uh, we're in a moment of real richness, and there is a lot of counter-influencing. But also, I don't feel like any of us feel there's a moment of plagiarism either. I feel there is this thing of we're, we're taking ideas from each other. We're... we're we're sharing ideas with each other, and and it's growing and it's getting stronger, and that's 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 the most important thing. Um, and I suppose I would end off with that by saying that also this is the generation that the door does not shut behind us. I'm not made pointing fingers at any um, any before us, but but the system perhaps has not allowed that to be the case. And for sure, this is the generation where that door stays open and the voices continue to come through. That is incredibly important. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more specifically about the works that we've been looking at. Okay. Well, so this is um, this is a film um, called Searching for Libertalia, which is um, which was based on a body of work I made around Madagascar. Um, I didn't make that body of work because it's because I don't make my work in a geographical sense, but I wanted to make work that explored um, independence movements of African states. And, and, and ex-colonies. And Madagascar is a really incredible and important place of which to describe that. Partly island nations, I think, because they are, because they are islands, they, to a certain degree, their the histories are slightly more, are slightly more compacted, slightly easier to read. So that was one aspect of it. But Madagascar has an incredibly complex history long before European arrivals. And actually, some of the earliest arrivals were from the Malay archipelago. Which you know, throw which folks still scratch their heads. But actually, when we, when you start to listen, we start to think about actually the movements that we have. It's actually not that difficult to understand how they would have been the first first folks on the island. And in that body of work, it is it, it's almost like a history documentary. It's a three-channel work, and it brings together three historical narratives that describe the colonization of Madagascar by the French. It describes the early, well, it describes the pre-colonial history. I don't really want to call it that, but, but it just makes it slightly easier at this point. The, um, and, and early European arrivals and piracy, which is what was one of the things that sparked off this body of work. This, I, there was a book written supposedly by Daniel Defoe in the 17th century called Our General History of Piracy, uh, in which he heroizes these, these, these pirates as kind of renegades against the crown. And um, and in one story, he talks about a Captain Misson who creates this libertarian colony or settlement in the north of Madagascar. And in that, he describes this. It's almost a blueprint of how to create your own state. He describes a very early written account of a kind of non-partisan democracy. And this story becomes a holy grail for libertarians for lots of good and bad reasons. But I decided to use that as a kind of blueprint of which to start to unpick and place together these far more complex ideas of takeover and the, almost the kind of repetition that we have in history in terms of the structure of the state and the takeover and colonization. Um, and what's so interesting within this is the, the French policy, which was called the politique de race, which is essentially divide and conquer. Unlike the British, the French actually put it into a state policy in Madagascar. It's written down, unfortunately, they can't escape it. Um, and it was about how you elevate those who are perhaps at the bottom of a society that you are taking over, and you put down the elite. Those who can raise an army against you, you put them down. And those who are always not doing that great in that society, you elevate them. Not too much, just a little bit, but enough that they will always be slight, they'll always be more loyal to you than to the former, <coughs> and that's how you divide and conquer. That's apparently what I was saying. So that is very much at the centre of what that piece of work was about and how we continue and the fracturing that continues and why so many post-ex-colony um, democracies, why there is this failure and this movement between unionism and, and, ind and, and independence and this kind of swing, which this country, is, as we see right now, is also going through that swing right now. 
<clears throat> yeah, so that was what that piece of work was about. Sorry, there's a lots of descriptions to go about. Maybe that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> But I just wanted to take a moment to thank you, Ashraf and uh, Shiraz. Ashraf, you should never <coughs> give lecturing. You're a natural. Um, it's wonderful to hear you speaking so eloquently and uh, um, giving us a very good uh, overview of the politics and the histories that are, are so interconnected and complex. And Shiraz, um, thank you for speaking about your work. Again, I mentioned you can see his work in the reel upstairs, so please do go and have a look. Um, and a quick reminder, we'll be back here at 1.30 tomorrow talking about education and transforming kind of pedagogical systems in Africa. And also, and you touched upon this so nicely, the importance of collaboration and community. And uh, so please do feel free to join us again tomorrow afternoon. Thank you so much and enjoy your evening.